there, there's a big game next week. I don't know if you've noticed that around here. I heard somebody online this week say, you know, everybody in the country except for the people in the Midwest are sick of the Kansas City Chiefs winning this thing every year, that it's boring to everybody else. Well, amen to that, and I like boring because I, I live around here, so it's, it's fun. I think this is Super Bowl 58, does that sound right, something like that? And, uh, but it's not the first time that two powerhouses, because we've been through this before with the 49ers, if you don't remember that back in a few years ago, um, that two powerhouses have uh, had a showdown. And we are back to our study of Elijah. We took a, a few sessions off. We got through Christmas. And if you don't remember, I'll catch you up to speed, but we were studying the life of Elijah from 1 Kings. And so if you can find in your Bibles 1 Kings chapter 18, you'll be in the right spot. Elijah came uh, to serve in a time God called him when there was a king on the throne named Ahab. Ahab was a mean king, a bad king. He married, Ahab did, a woman named Jezebel, and the two of them led the nation of Israel to worship um, false gods, idols, uh, the Baals. Um, so God, con I'm sorry, Elijah confronts Ahab, and then God whisked him away, and if you remember, God fed him with ravens by a brook for a while, and then the brook dried up, and he went and served with a widow and her young son, who was... Uh, died at one point. They were just starving to death, and Elijah was used to raise that young boy. And now Elijah's back on the scene. We left it at that. We left it with him running away from Ahab. And the time has come. It's been about, uh, what, three and a half years of no rain in the land because Elijah had um, prophesied no, no rain. So there was a great drought. People were really suffering. And at the end of this time, he shows back up, and with a, a, a buddy named Obadiah, um, gets a, an audience with the king, King Ahab. And so this is the Super Bowl. This is, uh, it would have been an event like that. He calls all the people to come watch this thing. And so we're right back in this competition. Um, here's how it's going to work this morning. I'm going to read the passage. It's quite a lengthy passage. And I'm going to make comments along the way. The outline is really like the application and stuff. So just bear with me as I read the text and make comments. Usually I just read it straightforward and pray. But I'm going to read it and make some comments along the way. It's a familiar story that many of you will know. And so, um, anyway, I'm going to draw out some application from it more than tell the story in great detail because you, you know it. But let's pray first that God would honor this. God, your word is rich. And for this story, um, if, you, if we grew up in church, it's, it's familiar. Um, and yet there are so many truths here that we need to find uh, that apply to us. And so teach us from the history here, God. Um, but more than that, encourage us and challenge us um, so that we can know that you are the true God and that the greatest uh, showdown that we have in the Bible here between you and the rival gods, at least one of those great showdowns, you win. And so help us to remember that and to, uh, to cheer for the right team, God. Help us to be on your side, to declare our allegiance to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll start in verse 16. Obadiah and Ahab had, met, had arranged this meeting. So it says, Ob so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab told him, uh, Elijah wants to meet. Ahab went to meet Elijah. And when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, replied, but you and your father's family have. So just stop for a second. There's a little blame game going on here. Both are right, and I'll bring this out in the outline in a second. Elijah's the one that prophesied no rain, so that was a problem. 
But the reason Elijah prophesied no rain was because Ahab and his family were wicked, and so he was the real troubler. Who's the real troubler? We'll get to that. But just for fun, go back to chapter 16 and look at verse 25. So Ahab is who Elijah's talking to. Ahab's father is a guy named Omri or Omri. But Omri did more evil than the eyes of the Lord and sinned more than all those before him. He followed completely the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, committing the same sin Jeremoda had caused Israel to commit so that they aroused the anger of the Lord and the God of Israel by their worthless idols. Okay, then Ahab ramps that up with Jezebel. They're, they're worshiping the Baals. So who's causing trouble? They both are. And I'll draw that out in a little bit. Um, Verse 19, now summon the people, we're back in chapter 18, now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So bring everybody. It's again, a big showdown. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal is God, follow him. Okay, I'll bring this out. The people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Not quite true. And there's a little pity party going on here. But anyway, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set it on fire. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set, it on, uh, set it, fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Both Baal and Yahweh claim to be in control of the weather, the skies. You can read this in the Psalms and in Jeremiah. They worship the nature's God. So whoever provided rain for crops, that was their God. And so there's a head-to-head challenge here. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Sounds like a good idea. Verse 25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Um, Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. Okay, there's a a difference here. They're praying and they're serious. I want you to think about this for a second. They are serious about their religion. They are praying earnestly. But what matters is not how earnest your religion or your prayer. It's to whom you pray. It's to whom you or whom you worship. They can be... People can be very sincere in religion, but not the God of the Bible, okay? And as we read here, the other gods don't answer. They're not true gods. And so, verse 27, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Doesn't this just sound like a Super Bowl game? Shout louder, he said. Surely he is God. Perhaps he's deep in in thought or busy. This is one of the fun things about studying the Bible. The word busy there is a euphemism for relieving himself, okay? So he's not saying he's just busy doing work. He's saying maybe he's sitting on the toilet right now. Think of that taunt to the God who's supposed to control everything. In fact, as you go through these taunts, busy in thought, or deep in thought, busy, traveling, the God of the Bible, listen, is not so deep in thought he can't respond to you. He's omniscient. 
He's never busy and he's never away. He's omnipresent. He's taunting them with the very attributes that the God that he knows and that we know has. So that's kind of a fun little deal. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. We have a Lord that never slumbers and never sleeps. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. So Romans talks about there is a zeal but without knowledge. I want you to think about your life and I want you to think about other people's lives. How many people do you know they are very sincere but it's not truth? It's not the God of the Bible. They are religious. They're fanatic about it. But it's not the God of the Bible. And, and, and a few things about them slashing themselves. First of all, the Bible said of God's people, you don't slash and cut yourself like the other religions do. Okay? So there's no self-mutilation here. There's nothing like that. That's prohibited in Scripture what they're doing. Secondly, is there's this idea that they're very zealous. And then the thing that just struck at me this week, and I wish I would have put it in the outline because I want to make more of it, but listen, we serve a God who does not ask us to bleed for him, but sent his son to bleed for us. Get that difference. There's nothing we can do, including giving our own life to be right with God, but God did the exact opposite. I mean, false religion, false idols here are the exact opposite of the God of the Bible. He's not too busy. He's always here. He cares. He hears. He answers as we're going to find out. And he does not expect you to pay the price. He pays it because we can't anyway. And so they're cutting themselves and all that. Verse 29, midday passed. So they're going on for quite a while. And they continue to be frantic, frantic, prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. And then I highlighted this verse. But there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Any false God, any false worldview, you can slap that on that. There's no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Jeremiah talks about the false gods being like scarecrows who can't talk. See, we worship all kinds of things except the God of the Bible, and you're always going to get no response, no answer, no one paying attention. What... What a hopeless situation for so many people. Then verse 30 tells us, Elijah said to the people, come here to me. And they came to him and they prepared the altar of the Lord. It was in disrepair and neglect. They had not been worshiping the God of Israel for quite a while. It had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, your name shall be Israel. So there's these 12 stones that represent Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seahs of seed. That's about a five-gallon bucket or so. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces, and laid it on the wood. And then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. So here's what's happened. I'll, I'll stop for a second here. It's like Israel won the cor- or, uh, Elijah won the coin flip, and he decided to defer to the second half. So he gives, them all, he gives them the ball first. They can do their thing. They can pick the bull. They can dance and do everything they want, and nothing happens. Now we're in the second half, and he says, okay, not only am I going to defer, but there's a penalty on me, okay? Um, Soak this thing with water. And remember, they're asking it to be burned up from from the heavens, and so this is a disadvantage. What he's doing here is he's setting up the scenario 
where if God doesn't show up, it ain't happening. There's no trick here. He's going to make it as hard for God, if you want, as he can. And, and it just got me thinking, and, and I hope it gets you thinking, what in your life or what in the life of our church or whatever can only be explained because God did it? See, we're, we're clever enough, we're skilled enough, we're resourced enough to do a lot of great things individually and as a church. But there's some things that only God can do. Only God can save people. You understand? We can put on a show. We can be the, have the greatest ministries. You can be the nicest person. You can argue till you're blue in the face. But unless God opens a heart, they won't respond. So it tells me a couple things, or at least one thing. What are we involved in? What are you involved in that God's got to do it? Many of us can live our whole Christian's lives on our own strength, and God never shows up because we've got it all under control. And so we shy away from sharing our faith. If he doesn't show up, it ain't happening. See, we just do the things we know we can control. Well, he's making it tough on God by pouring it all down. All right, verse 36. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today that you are God in Israel, okay? His first priority is that God gets the glory. He's not trying to say, I'm better than the prophets. He's trying to say, I want people to know who God is, right? That you are the God of Israel and that I'm your servant and have done all these things at your command. He's simply obeying the word of God. Answer me, Lord. I'm sorry, answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I'll, I'll draw this out in my outline in a second. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and it also licked up the water in the trench. All right, so we won. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. And I wanted to include this verse too. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. After several years, they're finally going to get rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed up to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. All right? familiar story you've seen it I know I've prayed once we get to pray more than once so I'm going to pray again as we now apply this okay let's pray God again let this story not just be a familiar Bible story God I, I pray that we find our place in it um, help us to identify with the characters here and and see where you might be speaking to us or where we're playing those roles um, God bring us all to our knees to say, you are, the, you are the Lord, you're the God. Help us to get rid of any false idols we may have. And God, we want the whole earth to acknowledge that you are God. So help us, God, just get this heart in us, um, your spirit move in us, please. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first of all, we have a public showdown. Now, it feels like I'm done already, I'm not, okay? By that clock, I got 25 minutes. Um, I think I'll be done quicker than that, but I, no promises. We have a public showdown. Why is this important? Um, much of the Bible, and including the most significant parts, are not just some made-up story. 
They're not some um, fiction, they're not fairy tale. That God does things publicly. Um, and so when he says, summon all the, so A, I have a gathering and assembly. Elijah could have just snuck into Ahab's room and, uh, you know, done some magic trick. No, he wanted people to witness this. God is a reasonable God. And he knows, and he did this not only with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, but with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the faith that we have is not some secret internal only thing it is something that can be seen and touched and felt think of thomas think of the witnesses of the resurrection think of all the witnesses of the crucifixion the crucifixion of jesus christ is one of the most well attested events in human history even those who don't agree with the meaning of it will tell you there was a man named jesus who claimed to be god who was killed by the romans on a cross and his tomb was empty now they may fill that with all kinds of other ideas but that's not an argument and so a couple of verses came to mind, Colossians 2.13. When you were dead in your sins and your, the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all your sins, all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. And that's a fascinating little, uh, I wish I could spend all day on that, but we were, we were con rightly condemned. There was a, a debt that we owed. There was a crime that we committed that was placed above Jesus' head, literally placed up there. Here's his crime. And yet publicly for all to see, he paid that debt, right? He did that, and he did it publicly, and he removed, what he, what's he say there? Our sins, the condemnation. There is no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. That's not just a made-up feeling I have. It was displayed on the cross in the empty tomb. Jesus paid my debt as a Christian. No matter what I've done in the past, it's freely forgiven. One of the enemy's jobs is to now that you're a Christian is to keep you in shame. Listen, if Christ has forgiven it, Christ has forgiven it. And so it's done publicly. Acts, 2 is another, Acts 26 is another place. Um, Paul is accused of losing his mind. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. Here is Paul, and one of the most powerful people on the planet at the time, and, and, and the guy doesn't argue with him. Christianity is true, and it's reasonable. If there's a holy God and we're sinners, somebody's got to pay. Jesus did it. There's a transaction. It makes sense. The question is whether God has opened our eyes to see that and receive that. But the king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner, right? The king Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Paul now challenges the king Agrippa, and Agrippa says, Paul, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Again, I want to preach this passage. You can't persuade anybody to be a Christian. You can present the true and reasonable facts. And then like Elijah and like Paul, and pray that God would open their heart and their mind. And Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God, there's that prayer part, not only you, but all who listen to me today may become what I am, a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, except you shouldn't be in prison. That's what he says, except for the chains. And so the first thing is our faith, like Elijah showing us, like the cross shows us, is a generally known fact. It's well attested. It's a public thing. 
that passage in Acts, uh, Spurgeon gets into this a little bit and says, why would not Agrippa become a Christian? And he says there's three people around us. So you have Festus, you have Agrippa, and you have his wife Bernice who are in this story. And here's how Spurgeon breaks it down. He says, some people don't accept Jesus Christ because like Agrippa, if he becomes a Christian, his wife Bernice, who's immoral and an idolater, might reject him and he would lose his marriage and he would lose the pleasure of marriage. And there's many people today even who reject Jesus Christ because they know the pleasure they fear they will lose if they follow Christ. They can't have fun anymore. Okay, I want this to land. Maybe that's you or maybe that's somebody you know. The other thing he doesn't want to do is when Paul presents this, Paul's called crazy. Some of you don't want to accept Jesus Christ because of the, uh, the, the perception that you've lost your mind. Maybe you fear being mocked or ridiculed or thought less of and, and people think you've, you've gone insane. And then the other one is just the hard-heartedness and the persecution that comes with it. You might end up in prison or jail or lose your job or whatever like that. People use the same excuses today. Here's what Spurgeon said about this. How many are influenced by the fear of men? Oh, you cowards. Will you be damned out of fear? Will you sooner let your souls perish than to show your manhood by telling a poor mortal that you defy his scorn? Dare you not follow the right, though all men in the world should call you to do the wrong? Oh, you cowards, you cowards. How you deserve to perish who have not enough soul to call your souls your own, but cower down before the sneers of fools. See, the public demonstration of God's justice at the cross, the public resurrection demands a public recognition. And the people back in Elijah's day, remember they said nothing. You need to declare if you're a follower of Christ or not. You need to state that. You need to know that. You need to come to that point. That's part of what baptism's all about, which we'll do here in a, in a few weeks. It's showing the world that you've hitched your wagon to Jesus Christ. So there's A, this gathering. B is there's these genuine accusations. And I'll, I think I'll move a little quicker here. Verse 17, Elijah says, you're the trouble of Israel right? Verse 18, he says, Elijah says to Ahab, no, you're the trouble of Ahab. I know I am, but what are you? You know, there's this blame game going on. And it's true, like I said, as I read it, Elijah's the troublemaker because he prayed for no rain at God's command. Ahab's a troublemaker because he's the reason they prayed for no rain. And it reminds me of what Simeon told Mary and Joseph when Jesus was born, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. He will be a sign that will be spoken against, so the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. What you do with Jesus Christ reveals where you are. He is either the greatest blessing in your life, or he's going to be the greatest curse in your life. Your heart, will eat, you'll either accept him, or you'll reject him. You'll either hear and heed his word, or you'll be hard-hearted in his word. Jesus Christ makes the same distinction, and again, the people that day in Elijah's day didn't get it. Thirdly, God's authority, this is point C, and I won't tell the whole story again, but the whole thing is who's really God? Is it Baal who claims to control the heavens or is it God, Yahweh, who claims to control the heaven? And so they go through this whole back and forth and I won't reread it, but you choose the bull, you do your dancing and I'll do my thing and, and God wins. But the ultimate thing here for this public showdown is who really is God? A question we have to answer and a question they had to answer. 
Point two, and this is more of a, what I want you to do as I go through the outline here, is I want you to say, which group are you in? Okay? A, there are those who rejected the Lord. If you see in verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. So some of you and some of us at different times just flat out reject God. We're not doing what his word says. We're sinners. We are sinning. We have rejected his word. We followed after other gods, whether it be the, the gods of this world or uh, most of us aren't worshiping little physical idols, but you know what I mean. And so if you're here today and you've rejected the Lord, this is speaking to you. Find yourself with Ahab, okay? Some of you are point B, reticence of the Lord. I had to work hard to make sure I knew what that word meant. That means you're hesitant to accept and declare something that you believe to be true or that might be true. You're just, you're, you hold back. So look at verse 21. And this is so sad to me, but so modern. It, it happens today. I think of myself in high school and college at this verse. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. They don't declare one way or another. Jesus would say, you can't serve both masters. When he says, why do you waver? Your version may say, why do you limp between this one and that one? It means you have one foot in one camp and one foot in the other, and you can't decide, am I going to pick God or am I going to pick the world? I'm not asking for a show of hands. But I suspect there's some in this room, including me at times, that that's my category. The choice is clear. The decision needs to be made. And I don't choose against God, but I don't choose for God. I simply do nothing. That's disobedience. What a sad group of people. What a sad group of people. Thirdly, and there's hope in this, some need to return to the Lord. Look at verse 36. At the time of the sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. There's a whole study. Remember, Elijah prayed earnestly. We, we got that. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. One of my prayers this week has been, if you have rejected the Lord or you're just quiet about the Lord, that God would turn your heart back to him today. That he is, that's my, been my prayer. I've joined Elijah in this prayer, that we would know God is God and he would turn our hearts to him. It's not just that kind of, I mean, a passion, a desire to follow the Lord. Again, I'm not asking for a show of hands. But I suspect there's many in this room that need to return to the Lord. Because the hope is, point D, that we would all recognize who the Lord is. Verse 39, and the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the goal. It's the glory of God. And we need to recognize that in a way that's not quiet, that's not rejection. So 
just in a moment, I want, right now, I want you to think where you are. Be honest. Listen, God knows, right? I may not know. You may have to do some digging, but God knows exactly which camp you fall into right now. And my prayer would be that, again, you'd either return to the Lord or you'd be recognizing who the Lord is. Point three is what made Elijah strong enough to do this, the prophet's strength. A is he was equipped in the past, and we've kind of lost this in the story, but don't forget he was ready to take on Ahab, and God whisked him away to the ravens and the brook, and he had to learn in the quietness that God would provide. And then he taught him that you need to serve people, so he sent him to that widow and that dying boy and realized that whatever God was going to do, as great as the showdown is on Mount Carmel, he needed to learn it's God doing all of this, and this is about people. Maybe one widow and her child, and now the people of Israel. But he had to learn whatever ministry looks like, whatever working for the Lord looks like, whatever your obedience and your passion looks like, it involves other people. And God has equipped you, I believe this, God has equipped you to serve other people. That something in your past, something in your history, something in the way God has made you, helps you deal with other people. Secondly, he was a man earnest in prayer. We see this in verse 36. He stepped forward and prayed. And we know this verse from James, James 5, 17 and 18. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. James is talking about this event. Elijah is not the power here. He's not the strength. It's God. And back to, he wasn't the only one praying that day. The Baal prophets were praying. Again, prayer is our source of strength, but it matters to whom you pray, right? It, it's not that you spend a lot of time in prayer, although that's good. It's you understand who God is and that he can do anything that's within his will and for his glory and for your good. But you need to understand prayer is, we, we unplug ourselves and we just try to do everything without the prayer part of it. Thirdly, and this might be a little redundant, he was engaging the people. Again, he prayed, Lord, I'm in verse 36, um, I'm your servant. Um, verse 37, the, so the people will know that you are the Lord and that you're turning their backs, uh, hearts back again. Um, this is about not me making a name or you making a name or you getting the glory. It should always be for, God should get the glory and it should be directed at other people. How can you serve and minister other people in the power of God based on your past that he's equipped you to do, all for his glory? But it's about people. We, we are not monks. We don't just sit in corners or nuns. We don't just sit there and, and, and relate with God. It, it spills out to the way we serve other people. And even down at verse 41 this struck me. Elijah said to Ahab, go and eat, for there, eat and drink for there is sound of heavy rain. What's that all about? I might come back to this next week. I'm not sure. But it hadn't rained for three and a half years. That was a miserable place to live. And Ahab's a wicked man. But like the Bible tells us, we should still, even the wicked, want what's best for them. Now, he wants them to come to God too, but this is, a, this is even a nod saying, Ahab, you know, you called me the troubler and you've been chasing me down and you sent your prop, all this stuff. But enjoy the moment because God's about to send some rain, okay? This is a good gift of God. We should hope 
And this this is all the caveats about we want them to come to faith in Christ. But the culture around us is, is, is it says back, I'm trying to think of which passage, Deuteronomy or something. Just go settle down, make this, make your home and your community and your neighborhood the best place it can be. So people can see the general graces of God so so they can come to the specific grace of God, which is Jesus Christ. We should hope for the best. We should make our community a better place as best we could. And D is the eternal promises. It says in verse uh, 36, I am your servant and I have done all these things at your command, right? He did, ex- he did what God wanted him to do. Um, God is faithful to that. And he challenged them on that. And then all for the praise of God so that it can be known that he is God. Fourthly, and this is kind of a weird way to end this up, the prophets were slaughtered. A is a harsh remedy. Verse 40 says, Elijah commanded them, seize the prophets of Baal, don't let anyone get away. They seized them and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. The Super Bowl will not end that way, right? There may be a dance in the end zone before the camera and there may be taunting, but nobody's going to get killed, we pray and we hope. That seems very harsh. Why would God do that? Well, point B is the harsh reality. Look at verse 36 again. I have done all these things at your command. The word of God says this. This is back in Deuteronomy 13. Is the Lord your God? It is the Lord your God you must follow. And him you must revere. Keep his commands and obey him. Serve him and hold fast to him. The prophet or dreamer must be put to death for inciting rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. That prophet or dreamer tried to turn you from the way of the Lord your God commanded you to follow. You must purge the evil from among you. Okay? Different day, all that kind of stuff, but Elijah is simply doing what Deuteronomy told him to do. And the harsh reality for those prophets of Baal was they came against God, they incited other people to come against God, and they would be judged for that. And I'm not just now talking about Old Testament people. Here's the harsh reality. Let me go through this point real quickly. The harsh remedy is you and I must die for our sins. Our sins deserve death. That's the truth. Somebody has got to die. The harsh reality is somebody's got to die. It doesn't fit my outline, but the beauty of the gospel is Jesus Christ died. It, it, people, someone was slaughtered, Jesus Christ, because our sins deserve death, and yet he paid the price. So if I can wrap this up, I want you to think about these things. First of all, have you reject, where do you fall in this camp? Have you rejected the Lord? Are you reticent of the Lord? Or do you need to return to the Lord, and do you need to recognize the Lord? Make sure you know where you stand in that, okay? I will be happy to talk with you about any of those things. Secondly, what are you doing, and, are you, and this gets to, are you being productive as a servant of the Lord the way Elijah was? How has God equipped you in the past to do something today? Are you earnest in prayer? And I want you to think about this. Who are you praying for that only God can do, that's, that are lost, that are wayward, I heard somebody on the the radio this week say, you may hate your job, but it'll change overnight if you pick two or three people that need Jesus Christ and you just start praying for them and you start looking at opportunities and maybe you can't overtly call the gospel or whatever, but they're on your heart 
to bring them to God some way, somehow. It'll, you'll see now your job is a mission field instead of just a drudgery. Just that one simple act. So who can you be praying for to come to the Lord? How can you engage other people and how can you hold on to the promises of God? Those are all the things. We need to know who we are, where we stand, and what we can do about it so that God can use us, okay? Let's pray. God, this passage was refreshing uh, to come back to. We had taken a few months off, um, but I thank you that your word was still there. And I thank you that we could see in this episode between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, between Elijah and his God and Ahab and his God, that you are the Lord. God, I pray that we would decide today, if you're the Lord, then we stand with you. If we don't think you are, then we'll just chase other things. But God, help us not be silent. Help us declare our allegiance today. God, some may need to return to you. They've done some dumb, sinful things. They are far from you. God, would you turn their hearts back to you today? God, bring your people back. Help us all to know that you are the God that you are the Lord. And God, help us be involved in this mission to help us understand how you've, you've organized and, and controlled our lives in such a way that we are in the right place at the right time to serve other people, to bring them and win them to Christ. And God, we just pray for that to happen too. God, would you speak to us by your spirit in our hearts. Help the truth of this passage to be real and clear at this moment God we love you we ask all this for the glory and in the name of Jesus Christ Amen